Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Mark, if I haven't met you, and uh, I'll be sharing the Good Friday sermon today. And we've been in a process, thank you, Liddy, um, here at Red of moving through Lent. And I want to uh, provide, I guess, just a little bit of a reminder of that journey. Lent is a process where we symbolically walk through the Easter story, walking with Jesus towards the cross, doing it in a way where we remember this work. The reason we do this is because something absolutely crucial happened 2,000 years ago. That's essential to the Christian story. And so over the last few weeks, as we've heard God's word open and preached upon, we've heard of different promises, different prophecies, which speak of one to come, this Messiah, this Christ who will come, God coming close. We heard it last week, the incredible story of Jesus's trial as Andy brought God's word and this confrontation between Jesus and the whole Roman Empire occurred. And we saw that battle between the powers and principalities of the world, which opposed God and God coming in human form. And so I want to read this passage. We're not going to read through the whole story as we've done in past years. I really want to focus upon one particular uh, little, uh, I guess, segment of Jesus' uh, death upon the cross that's going to come to us from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 19, verse 28. It says this, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the question I want to focus upon as we get to this point of the Easter story is those two phrases, knowing that everything had now been finished, we hear in the first sentence. And Jesus saying at the moment just before he passes, it is finished. This leaves us asking what is finished? What has been in play? What has been built up to? What is this work that Jesus is engaged on upon the cross to the point where you can see he's hanging on with every last ounce of strength, his last breath. And then finally says, this work, it's finished. And he bows his head and gives up his spirit. To answer this question, we have to examine something which is absolutely central to the Good Friday story. It's absolutely essential to what we remember today as we gather and mourn and reflect upon why this all had to happen, 
What was the work that Jesus was doing upon the cross? And the issue that we have to focus on is one, interestingly, that in a sense we recoil from. The scripture spoke of would be offensive in cultures throughout human history. And that's the issue of sin. Often you'll hear quips in the comments sections of newspapers or in offhanded comments from people that all the church ever does is talk about sin. Well, I just wanna say as someone who is a minister, has now been a minister for a few decades and has been to probably more church services, conferences, seminars, increasingly podcasts, being involved in so many different Christian things. I actually wanted to share with you and across the denominational spectrum from high churches, Protestant churches, Catholic churches, to Pentecostal churches, to people who are very reserved in their worship, to mega churches, to small churches, across the board, the absolute opposite is actually true. In 2022, you'll rarely hear about sin in the church. And we tend to think of sin as doing something wrong. If we think about in our culture, we may not talk about sins, but there's definitely times when there are cultural lines crossed. You may have been in another culture, perhaps on a holiday, perhaps visiting somewhere, and there's a moment when you know you've crossed the cultural line and you've done something wrong and the atmosphere has changed in the room and you've done something that's taboo. In Australia, we do have lines which are rarely articulated of when someone creates or sorry, commits a cultural sin. In Australia, we tend to have sort of three phases. You have the first phase, which is when you're doing the right thing. And in this phase, you're a good bloke. You're great. Then you get into this space, some people get into this space, and it's a little bit blurry. In this space, here you're good, here you're a lovable rogue, a colourful character. You're a diamond in the rough, or to use the classic Australian term, you're a bit of a larrikin. Often they're used around males, you hear other ones like, she's a scream, she is a force of nature, but she's great. You don't want to get on her wrong side, but she's got a heart of gold. So in Australia, we've got this weird, I don't know if it's the convict thing in the past, this weird in-between space, often applied to sports people, and you've got the good bit here, and then you're like, ah, oh, this is sort of the Ned Kelly zone. Didn't arm robbery, but mate, you know. But then there's a definite line, and there's a definite line that you cross, and you know you crossed it in Australia when you've gone from lovable larrikin and that's in the Australian term, mate, that is a dog act. <laughs> and you know that you've then moved. And then if you do a dog act, if you keep doing a dog act, mate, you're an absolute dog. <laughs> so this is the Australian spectrum of sin. They're in every culture. And what this says to us is that we're uncomfortable about sin, but we know that it exists. We may fail to articulate it, talk about it as explicitly anymore, but understanding sin is utterly crucial to understanding the human condition. 
We see its effects all around. Humans feel hurt by others' behavior. Humans also hurt others. It's rare that you find an interpersonal uh, situation where someone feels hurt, and there's often blame on both sides. It's really complex. Humans also feel isolated. Humans feel anxious. Humans have an incredible capacity to sabotage good things. Humans feel unloved. Humans sense that there's something wrong with creation. Humans sense that there's something wrong with human society. I saw a report last night on the French coming up election. France is actually doing better economically than it's done. Um, unemployment's high, uh, uh, lower. There's actually in a better place than they were a few years ago. But they were interviewing people on the street and they, they were saying, How, why are you upset when the economy is doing well? And they said, they just kept saying, I don't know, something's wrong. And that's across the world. You'll see that all over the world at this point in time. On the left and the right, people sense that there's something wrong. And throughout human history, Humans have had different stories and, and, and religious explanations of why there is sin and why broken, our creation is broken. I won't go into these in details, but some might be karma, that your past actions, past lives are influencing now. Others, it may say, you comes from a lack of submission to God or gods, that you've done some wrong action that's in a sense cursed you. Others see that actually what's bad with this world is all this physical stuff that we almost need to move into this purely spiritual. And so as a society in our contemporary Australian society, we may not tell those stories or people outside of those specific faith communities may not explain sin with those stories. And we dance around sin, but increasingly we're aware of its impacts and we remain frustrated by its resilience. And so as I thought about this, I realized that what's happened in culture as we've become more aware of sin, we've developed these coping mechanisms, these non-religious approaches and worldviews that even shape how often religious people view sin. These are ways of talking about sin without really talking about sin. So I identified four. The first one, which is at play in our culture, is for people who bring to this hedonistic worldview. And this says, well, what's the purpose of life? Well, the purpose of life is pleasure. What's sin, therefore? Sin is preventing pleasure. Sinful people, sinners, there's not really many sinners in this worldview, but the sinners are those who stop you sinning. What is the world? The world is your playground. Now, what is this attitude towards faith? Well, its problem with faith is faith is too moral. It prevents you doing all the fun stuff. And the solution then, the salvation message, is actually less rules, more pleasure. Now, this one's actually been, I think, in, in our culture for at least a couple of generations, probably really sort of kicked off uh, after the war or had precedence before then. This is the rock and roll story. This is the free love story. But increasingly, we also have another story that's emerging. I'm going to call this the moralistic story, which helps us approach sin. What's the purpose of life? It's to do good. Well, what is sin? Well, sin is the oppression that comes from ignorance. What is the world? The world's actually a good place, but it's ruined by prejudicial, ignorant people. 
Whereas the hedonistic worldview would say that actually the problem with the church is too moral, this worldview would actually say the church is too immoral. And the solution then to this problem of ignorance and prejudice in the world is more virtuous edu- education. If you can just show more people what it is to be good, educate people, bring them better information, then the problem of sin can be dealt with. At first I was just going to do these two. But as I thought about this over the week, I sensed that there were actually more others emerging. So a third one, which I think is again growing, is what I would call the therapeutic. Therapeutic meaning feeling good, where the purpose of life is actually to feel peace. What's sin? Sin is the causing of mental and emotional harm in others. How does this view of the world see the world? It sees it actually as a dangerous place. What about faith? Well, faith is acceptable if it brings you personal peace, but it's actually really bad if it doesn't. What's the solution? Well, to find safety, to find a place to stand, to get an authority figure to come in and create that place of safety where you'll be free from mental and emotional harm, free from anxiety. The last one is what I call the nihilistic. What's the purpose of life? What's to feel nothing? What's sin? It's everywhere. It permeates everywhere. What's the world? Mate, it's a, it's a disaster. What's your attitude toward faith? Yeah, it's corrupt, but pretty much like everything else, economics, politics, sport, everything, all my mates, everything, it's all corrupt. What's the solution? Retreat, escape. Computer games, drugs, your bedroom. And so we actually don't have one view that you might find in other cultures of how to think about sin. We actually have these four. And as you see these and go through these lists, you may wonder what one you most trend towards. I'd ask the question, what is the most dominant one, do you think, in Australian 21st century culture? The next slide will provide the answer. It's all of them. We're somewhere in that Venn diagram at the center. People go from hedonistic to moralistic, from therapeutic to nihilistic. At the moment, we're just trailing through them all. And what this does, this contradictory hodgepodge approach actually falls short. It fails to truly root out sin. We have no agreed upon moral vision. This creates conflict and cultural war within our culture. We constantly receive contradictory messages about the world and without an accurate assessment of sin, we can't see the world properly. We can't live properly. And so what different groups moving and cycling through these, they then try to locate sin in others, to blame that culture over there, those outsiders, others no go, it's us, it's our culture. It's those who are unable to live up to the moral standards that we're setting. Or as many do, I think in the quiet places, blame themselves. And constantly lash at ourselves for not living up to one of these. So why do our attempts to deal with sin go so wrong? 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebel against God's rule. They reject the roles to be God's stewards of creation that he'd given them. And creation is then cursed by their sin. And what this does is it alienates humans from God. This creates three other sub-alienations. Humans become alienated from themselves. Adam and Eve, as soon as the fall happens, become overtaken with shame and fear, anxiety and self-doubt. They then become alienated from each other. Adam and Eve become alienated from each other. And you see as the story plays out that brothers, families, nations, individuals are marked by hurt, loss, betrayal, jealousy, envy, competition, and conflict. We see this in the world between two friends in a share house, and we see it between nations in the world at this time. Is it any wonder that we struggle to root out sin? And Tim Keller states this, the root of our problem is not these horizontal relationships, these three alienations that happen between us, between ourselves, between us and nature. Did I do nature? I missed the third one. Did I? Did I have a third one? Did I just do two? Thank you. The third one. Humans are alienated from nature. We age, we toil, we face danger, we die. Nature is brutal. Disconnected from nature, increasingly we find ourselves disconnected from reality. Tim Keller says... Of these three horizontal things, he says this, the root of our problem is not that these, these horizontal relationships, though they're often the most obvious, it's actually a vertical, vertical relationship with God. All human problems are ultimately symptoms and our separation from God is the cause. And as Josh Butler, our friend from the US who has spoken here a couple times says, the heart of the matter of sin is actually a matter of the heart. The ultimate issue is one of the human hearts and how our sin separates us from God, which if you look at scripture manifests in a lack of worship of God, of godlessness. It manifests in false worship, worshiping creation, not the creator. And it manifests in self-worship, the sin of Adam and Eve to try and be like God's, to replace God's rule and reign with what we think is best. We become the ultimate authority through which to interpret what God says. So we're in a pickle. We're in a tremendous personal, cultural, and global problem. But the reason that we're here, the good news that we are celebrating, that we've been walking through for the last few weeks, that we're celebrating this weekend, is that Easter tells us that God has come to save us from sin. And to truly understand this, and maybe you've heard this story before, but many of us miss that this a key thing we must grasp to understand the Easter story and help us understand two things about God. Firstly, God is faithful. God created humans in his image. He created you in his image. 
He created us to be in a loving relationship with him. And he tasked us, he tasked you to be his representatives of his authority on earth. That's the first thing, he's faithful. The second thing is that he's righteous. That means he's just. He cannot abide sin, evil, or false worship. This is not just because he doesn't like it. This is actually because his presence actually comes against sin. It's so built into his nature. And so therefore, God must be true to two sides of his nature. He must be true to his faithfulness and his righteousness. And so if God only exercised his faithfulness, the problem of sin is not addressed. There is no justice. God is not truly holy. He would then he would tolerate the worst things happening. Creation would stay broken. Our alienation continues. God would act as a kind of permissive parent, all love, but no justice, never solving the problem of sin. Conversely, if God only exercised his righteousness, if there was only God's wrath, the guilty are punished. For who can stand and say that they have not sinned? Who has not placed anger, envy, hatred, selfishness, pride, passivity in the face of injustice upon the tiring pile of human sin that sits atop human history? If God just exercised his righteousness, his justice, this would be all justice, but no love. And particularly, that's confronting when we read, as Paul says in Romans 1, 8, 20, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The word sin first occurs in scripture after the fall, when in Genesis 4, God says to Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The original language of these words defines sin as something which causes offense, which is an action which falls short. This means the sin is not just majorly bad stuff. It's not crossing some cultural line of what our culture says is the worst thing to do. Rather, actually, the Bible expands sin, the definition of it, leaving us with the realization that all of us fall short. There is ultimate equality in sin because everyone on earth has sinned. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is rarely preached today. I think this is why you rarely hear about sin in 2022. Because actually what it says is we all deserve the wrath. We all deserve the judgment. To be true to his nature, to be God, the problem of sin of the human heart must be answered. God must show both his faithfulness and his righteousness. For his wrath and his love are actually a two-edged sword. For Jesus to come to be reconciled to humanity, to rid the world of sin, a work must be done. It 
is finished. On the cross, a work was in play. That's what we celebrate today. Good Friday is called good because it's good news. We see this work upon the cross is finished. Why is this good news? I think there's three elements of this good news. Firstly, the story we celebrate today, the answer to the problem of sin. The first part of that good news is in the word incarnation. Incarnation means putting flesh on something. And Jesus incarnated into the world. His answer to this great problem of sin in the world and then him being true to both his faithfulness and his righteousness is he comes in human form. We pushed him away, yet he came close. He gave up all the riches of heaven to come to earth. Why? Because of his faithfulness, his love for us. He comes close because of his love for you. That's why today is good. The second word, first word incarnation, the second word is substitution. He took our place. Yes, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have to truthfully deal with the reality that all of us have fallen short. But today is called Good Friday, and this is good news because we deserved God's wrath, yet upon the cross, he takes that. He took it for us. He is faithful, but he's also just and righteous. Jesus took our place, defeating sin and death, so God who is holy and righteous can come and make his home in the world, make his home in you. And upon the cross, he experienced the alienation that we experience, the isolation, rejected by his friends, rejected by all other humans. But probably most painfully, we realize that as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes upon himself that alienation from God. He took our place because he loved us. Upon the cross, he held together both faithfulness and righteousness, love and justice. And so the third thing, we're not at Resurrection Sunday yet, but we are at Good Friday and there's good news on Good Friday. Three things, incarnation, substitution, but the last thing is restoration. Having come close, having stood in our place, Jesus restores us. He restores our relationship with him. He restores us to the role to be his agents in the world. And as we walk that out, it begins to restore all of the relationships that are broken. And I believe at this moment, perhaps individually for you, I think for our culture, at this moment of great reckoning, renegotiation and re-examination, I think for a church emerging out of a pandemic, we need to be freed from sin. We need to be freed from the weeds which strangle the good seed of God. We need to be freed from sin in order to receive a fresh 
revelation of how much you are loved by God. We need a fresh revelation that at this point, God's holiness is still in play. Particularly, I think, for us in the West, that actually we can forget God's holiness. We can reconfigure faith in our answer to sin through one of those four categories that are really the hidden, submerged religions of our day. The church needs to be freed from sin to receive a fresh revelation. And so this Good Friday, you may have come following Jesus going to church for many years, but this good news story needs to be heard again for you. Perhaps sin has taken a place somewhere. Perhaps self-hatred's taken over. Perhaps you're in a moralistic quest to try and do faith all in your strength, trying to save yourself. Perhaps you're in a secular moralistic crusade to try and live up to these standards where everything's moving and you don't know what to do today. We need again to hear the good news story. And for those of you who perhaps are here never having made that first decision, never having really had the spirit open your eyes to what this story of good news is, that God actually holds together his faithfulness and his righteousness on the cross, his love and justice for you. I would like to invite you to consider that perhaps this is a moment to say yes to him for the first time. And actually, this gospel is a seed planted in your heart that's going to grow into a magnificent tree of life in your life. So what we're going to do now is Britain and Lydia are going to come and they're going to lead us in a prayer of confession. In the midst of that, there's an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, whether you need to say yes again, not because you need to be saved again, because his work is done, it's finished if you've said yes to him, but to say yes to following him deeper. And for others, this is also an invitation to say yes for the first time.